How lucky are we? How lucky are we that we get to live in a time of such great opportunity? When, yes, sure, we're teetering on the edge of a global climate calamity, still reeling from a pandemic, knowing that our problems and our challenges are not only enormous, but systemic, maybe all-encompassing, you could say, and often linked together. How lucky are we to be able to look and say, look at all these things, look at this as opportunity, look at all the ways I could have an impact, need to have an impact right now. How lucky are we that so many people, both scared for their futures and emboldened by a feeling of having both nothing to lose and everything to lose all at the same time, that they are choosing not to just go trade derivatives or build more ad tech, but instead dream. People, and especially young people, dreaming and actually designing and organizing and building and testing innovative, groundbreaking solutions, chipping away at problems that, frankly, in totality, seem way too big, way too hard. But when broken down, make us feel like Lloyd Christmas in Dumb and Dumber. So you're saying there's a chance. Welcome to Important Not Important. My name is Quinn Emmett, and this is science for people who give a shit. In my weekly conversation, I take a deep dive with an incredible human who's working on the front lines of the future to build a radically better today and tomorrow for everyone. Along the way, we'll discover tips, strategies, and stories you can use to get involved and to become more effective for yourself, for your family, your city, your company, and our world. This is another in our series of conversations with 776 Foundation Fellows, and I'm so excited to share it. Part of the reason I left California was because of the fire risk to my home and family and the smoke risk. I was an asthma kid and the drought. I was lucky to be able to leave, of course, but so many can't. And as we all know by now, there will be migration by the millions, maybe billions, but none of us can just run from climate change. But in the West, and across the world over and over recently, we have been forced to confront fires that are burning bigger and hotter in drier vegetation, closer to where people live because that's the only place they can afford to live. Fires fought by exhausted, underpaid firefighters. We need reinforcements. We need better ideas. They need help. We need people like Valkyrie Holmes. Valkyrie is the co-founder of Project Firefly, a new company supported by 776 that combines drone technology with pressurized air cannons to better contain wildfires. Yes, you heard that right. In her brief but wildly impressive time as a professional, she's worked as an intern at SpaceX and in various roles at MIT, NASA, Google, and more. I'm such a huge fan of Valkyrie's origin story and perspective on life and how to take on these big, scary problems like wildfires. So we get at everything from self-confidence to heat signatures, what the hell vortex cannons actually do, and how they could help alleviate the enormous strain drought and fire are putting on resources around the world. You can get at me at quinn at importantnotimportant.com or on Twitter at Quinn Emmett. Let's go talk to Valkyrie. Valkyrie, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. Hell yeah. Valkyrie, like I said, we did a whole intro, very exciting, and now we're getting into this thing. But I'd like to start with one important question, Valkyrie, to really, you know, set the, set the tone here, get us on the same foot. Valkyrie, instead of, what's your entire life story? I like to ask, why are you vital to the survival of the species? And I encourage you to be bold and honest and have some fun with it. Oh, interesting. It's kind of a fascinating thing to ask a question like that specifically because my whole, I guess, mantra for life, the thing that I think has gotten me the furthest is the fact that I'm not special. It's the fact that everyone in this world is kind of existing along with everyone else. And I think early on in my life, I grew up 
in like a loving family and I feel like I was I'm pretty privileged in the fact of like my family's middle class and like I've had a lot of opportunities with that came this thought process of oh like I deserve this I deserve all these things I'm getting and I got to about 16 and I realized that I was so unhappy thinking that way I actually don't think that I'm vital it's more just the fact that if anyone's going to do it why not me Tell me a little bit about your parents. What do your parents do? What kind of role do they play in your life? Do they play in your life? My dad is actually a craps dealer on the strip. He's uh, He works at Aria, and he's been doing that all of my life um, for like the last That's 20 cool. years, I believe. Um, so he works on the strip, and like now he's working swing shifts, but he used to work day shifts, so we just come home, and he'd be there. And then my mom, she used to work at the coroner's office, and then worked at a blood bank, and then is like now stay at home, but she still teaches beginning piano to like the little kids in our neighborhood. Can you play piano? Yeah. She she taught us like originally and then we got like a teacher and I played piano for God, it's like thirteen years now. We love music, everyone in my family. Like that's that's both my parents and they both met in Vegas. They've been in Vegas their entire lives. Like I was born and raised here. Mm-hmm. An interesting place to grow it's up. It's changed a lot. Yeah, yeah. No, it's like for People under 21, you know, it's definitely less exciting, but definitely I think the actual environment that Vegas puts you in is just a place where there's so many different kinds of people. And I met so many people in school and outside of school, just from different cultures and different ranges of experience in life. And it's an interesting place. I don't think it's like many other places um, Mm -hmm. in that sense. Sure, sure. Um, Now, when you left home recently did you take a keyboard with you how do you continue your checking that box musically well it's interesting because i so i i play piano competitively and then i stopped for like a good like six or eight months just because i was so burnt out and then i started learning again and just like got back into it and i haven't played in a little while just because like i went to new york and like I moved there and then I went to Canada and like all of it was like me working in Canada. They had a keyboard there. So I, I played there a little bit, but it's definitely hard in terms of like piano players. I feel you. It's our instrument is so huge. I get it. I'll play here. My mom is already, you should maybe like play. <laughs> Made that bit. clear. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no, back. Exactly. Let's go. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Uh, I love that. I, I was a percussionist for a very long time and, and I get it. I, my, my obstacle was always, I really loved being the backbone of whatever was, whether it was an orchestra or a jazz band or whatever it might've been, but not the sort of instrument you can break out at a party or just, there are a variety of percussion instruments where you can create a melody. But like you said, I'm not lugging around a xylophone anytime soon. Nobody just wants to hear a snare drum. That's not fun for anyone, including me. (laughs) Valkyrie, pianist. And please correct me everywhere I'm wrong here. Always wanted to be a chemist, pivoted to engineering and physics, and graduated high school year early, right? I was just about the opposite of that. Moved out, wrote a bunch, went to a bunch of conventions. You've since spent time at MIT, NASA, Google, SpaceX, correct? Raised funding for Project Firefly, which we're going to get into. And then you wrote this whole post on Medium, I think. About moving out at 18, 18. living with a bunch of other kids, as you put it, in New York. I'm not going to call you kids. You call the kids. About how difficult it was when you realized your dad was acknowledging that you were actually moving out, moving out. Mm -hmm. And how much your mom would always be there for you. Yeah. And understanding how quickly you seem to have understood that however much you want to, you can't help everyone. Does that sum up where we are? Yeah. First of all, welcome to the climate fight, which is uh, you can't help everybody mm-hmm. you want to help. No, exactly. <laughs> uh, then you you found your way to 776. Where are we now? This is a tremendous journey you've been on so far. You've done more in, in the year since you left high school than I've done in the past 25. <laughs> I want to preface everything by saying, like, I wake up every day, like, thinking about how grateful I am that I got so lucky. <laughs> like... I will never take this life for granted again. And like I did for a long time, my teenage years were 
rough mentally to say the least and like I'm very glad that I could come out of it being like so grateful and wanting to take advantage of all these opportunities and I never want to be in a spot where that's not the case so I'm just very thankful I'll just say that right off the bat like I'm very thankful that I've gotten to do all the things that you have have just uh, talked about and I think like I was actually I'm recording a new podcast series right now and like I recorded an episode just a few days ago that was revisiting that article and it was essentially me reading it I wrote it originally on the plane to Boston Mm -hmm. right after I had moved out and uh, I I read it again and like it just it seems so sad to me like reading it now because you know I end on a note that's like supposed to be constructive where it's like you know I can't help everyone you know, I can, I'm going to continue on with my projects and just see where it goes. And I read that now and I'm like, where's your imagination? Like, where's your spirit? Uh-huh. And like, I, I was like just talking about it earlier. And like, even though I can't help everyone, I don't think it hurts to try, you know? And like, obviously, like, I, I feel like I'm a realist. Like, I understand that that's probably not going to happen. But having the dream of helping everyone mm-hmm. and then just kind of giving up and being like, well, I'll just help the people that I can to me it just doesn't it doesn't process correctly <laughs> like like for me it's just like i'd rather like shoot way above where i want to go and sure, then sure. i'll still land closer to that than if i had just been like oh like i'm just gonna help the people that i can for me it's always worked better if i think like really positive i'm the very optimistic one i'm always like you know we'll get through it like everything's mm-hmm. gonna be fine everything is supposed to work out the way it's supposed to work out it'll be it'd be fine I read that article and I got sad because I was like, I'm like giving up in this article. (laughs) And like to other people that it definitely doesn't sound like that to everyone. But to me, like I I read it back and I just thought like, this is definitely not you. Like this, this Hmm. is not who you are right now, at least. Mm -hmm. Maybe it was back then. But I think the cool part about like reflecting on work that is public is that you're just changing over time. And you can see, you can look back on those things and see kind of what that progression is. And I think it's cool because beginning like like last summer, I don't even recognize who I was. I don't even know who I was. Like I know I do, I did stuff, but apart from that, like my actual being, I just don't remember. And I think that's good because that means that you know you've changed a lot. And I don't know, it's a big ramble, but. But, you know, there, there's just a lot that has to do with that article that I'm, I'm very proud of. It's one of my favorite articles I've ever written. I do revisit it and I'm like, that's not me. <laughs> that's not me anymore. Well, I think it's helpful to understand that we change over time, certainly. You know, there are parts of us that we become more self-aware of. You know, we all go through things. Obviously, the past few years have been that way. We've all had our down moments or feeling like we were more constrained or impotent than we thought. Right. You know, what could I possibly do against things like that? It's like, you know, when someone comes to me and says, I read an article, the jet stream slowing down. What are we supposed to do about that? I'm like, you can't do anything about that. Here's what you can do. It's hard. It's hard. And confronting a big new wide world and moving out and doing all these things and hopping around to all these incredible places can both open that aperture, but also make you feel like, where's my place in all these things? So it's helpful to acknowledge that all you all you can do is all you can do, but aiming for the stars, it's always better to start from the biggest shot, right? Like you said. I'm going to be honest with you here, Valkyrie. I try to do as much research as I can about my guests and what they're working on. And I have to tell you that my baseline understanding of fluid dynamics, I think, comes from three years of college swimming. That's as far as it goes. And to be clear, yeah. it might not be the same thing. All I knew is you dive in, you swim to that end, and then you come back and try not to pass out. There's nothing about wildfires that I remember. And it's, again, very possible. We're talking about two different areas of science here, which is great. So could you please provide an explanation for the people of why you got your fellowship with 776, what you're working on, what Project Firefly is, and what you hope to achieve with it? Yeah, absolutely. So Project Firefly is a uh, it's a company that I started with my co-founder, Jesse Pound, and it is essentially us combining drone tech with pressurized air cannons to better contain wildfires. And essentially what that is, why you mentioned fluid dynamics, is water and fluids can move the same as gases. 
a lot of the time. So like when you think about like rings underwater, like uh, for example, when a whale or a dolphin, like that blowhole, you blow a ring underwater, you can kind of see the outline of it. That's oh, air sure. moving. <laughs> that's that's air moving like the same kind of way as water. It's It's a fluid kind of motion. And that's essentially the same kind of thing that we're doing with our cannons, which are called vortex cannons. Really try to paint a picture. Imagine I'm a kindergartner. Paint a picture of me of, we've got a wildfire. Here comes Valkyrie. What's, hap- what, what's happening? It's early in a wildfire, right? We're trying to get ahead of it. What are you doing? Our drones would kind of survey the land. It's usually we have like a Bertha drone, which is essentially like the main drone that connects to everything else. So we have one drone that circles the forest. And if there's any heat signatures, if there's any fire that we spot, then they send a signal to all of the other drones under it. And those drones have cannons attached to them that essentially take in outside gaseous material and force it through this cannon to form a ring. And I can get into that a little bit later, but mm-hmm. essentially we're, we're throwing balls of air at this fire to either extinguish it or put up a firewall to be able to essentially like stop the fire from spreading before the authorities get there. We're trying to catch things as small as they can because in that case we can extinguish them fully. We're aiming for it to be more used for containment just because then it's it's a lot easier for firefighters to fight on the front lines. It's a lot easier for fires to actually be contained, especially when they spread it around a football field a second, the big ones. And, you know, like coming from L.A., I'm sure you've heard of all the California wildfires and in Vegas, like specifically, we're a valley. We live in a valley. So all of the smoke and ash and soot that comes up over the mountains settles in the valley or it's like downtown Vegas, like where my dad works and, Mm -hmm. you know, all this stuff. And, you know, we see the effects of it all summer long. I definitely like sympathize with all the people in California that have to relocate and my co-founder she lives in bc canada and they have a ton of wildfires up there and her Mm -hmm. parents are service workers like they're police officers and they have to go help out with that stuff so she's like directly in it all the time so it's definitely a scary thing but that's that's basically how it how it works on a very general two questions one this is real yes this is something that may actually work because yes one of my great privileges in this life among many of them, is you are guest number 144. First in our hearts. Don't sweat it. (laughs) But I've talked to some of the smartest people on the planet. And I'm relatively intelligent, depending on the day and the coffee intake, and fairly technical. But yet, there are times I talk to people and I'm like, I have no idea where I could possibly begin to build an air cannon, much less strap it to a drone with what I'm assuming is duct tape and then program it to look for wildfires and to tell its friends to come help. We had a guest, two guests once, two two women who are pediatric cancer research. So they work on kids' cancer, which is truly like the most infuriating shit on the planet. It drives me crazy. They work with a wonderful foundation I love called Alex's Lemonade Stand Foundation, and they do a lot of cutting-edge research. And one of the things they explained, and I'll send you the link to the episode, and I can't remember exactly their explanation how to get from A to B, but somehow they use zebrafish to try to solve cancer. And my first thought is, what's a zebrafish? Where do you buy it? What kind of water does it need? Does it need the tank with the light and the little things at the bottom and the rocks? Much less like, how do I get to cure cancer? Very confusing. So I'm very excited to hear about yours because like you said, I was in Los Angeles for a very long time. I'm very aware of the wildfire risk, very aware of the smoke risk, certainly, even if you're not in the wildfire area, we had a great conversation with uh, Dr. Mary Pernicki from Stanford about basically nobody knows more about what's in wildfire smoke than she does. And she was like, all I know is it's real bad. And we're trying to find out how much worse it is than that. So, mm-hmm. so this seems very important. How did you come to this? Why did you come to this? Of all the different ways you could apply yourself, why wildfires? And then we'll get to the drone stuff. My background in specifically like climate change and like wanting to make a difference environmentally started with food. So I had like a big like kind of bout with like eating disorders in the past and I switched to being vegetarian kind of like to almost fuel that eating disorder. But then like Mm. upon doing more research and watching a lot of these documentaries, I realized that the meat industry is just not the best 
for climate. That's an understatement. Continue. Exactly. I haven't eaten meat for the last three years. And that's kind of where my love for the climate started. I mean, I've always loved animals and I love nature. But around the same time, I started like taking a lot more walks. And Vegas is not the greenest place. Like It's, it's definitely desert territory. <laughs> but the places that are green here, you know, I love so much and I love lakes. And part of the reason why I love the East Coast is that it is so green. I have always loved nature. My friend Jesse and I, we were doing this hackathon with the Knowledge Society, which is a student accelerator program for kids like 13 to 18 that want to do something that changed the world. And they're like a really crucial part of why I even am here. Like it's a great program. And if, if anyone has kids, they should put them in it because it is great walking advertisement for TKS. I joined that program and we were doing a hackathon for them. And uh, the hackathon was surrounding moonshot technology, which is essentially technology that might not be possible now, but with with an effort like it could be uh possible in three to five years mm -hmm. so we were looking around and jesse actually stumbled upon this research paper by these two graduate students at georgia tech who were researching how to put fires out with like sound waves and they used a little cannon and um like a little speaker on the back of it and were able to put out a small fire as their like grad project again and pardon my language here, but truly, Valkyrie, what the fuck? Like, I, I don't... So, all right, we might as well do this. How does it work? How, what are we talking yeah. about? Like, so you've told me, I mean, I remember lying on the bottom of the pool, my friends, and blowing the air bubble like a mm -hmm. whale or a dolphin. Super cool. All right, how big is the drone? So the drone is like 15 feet diagonally. So not small. They're huge. <laughs> They're pretty big. Is Bertha, by way of its name, larger or just in charge? Just in charge. They're, they're all the same size. And how autonomous are these things? They could be like fully autonomous, but mm -hmm. we're trying to figure out a way for the data collection and like surveillance kind of thing to be fully autonomous. And then okay. for people to be able to take a hold of it and like the drones in the swarm, if they need to move things or... Or if they come after us. It's good to have that kill switch. You know? So yeah, 100%, 100%. I think my, my wife wants one from me. Is Bertha, you said earlier, is constantly sort of, well, at least you said looking for heat signatures. Are you sending Bertha, hey, there might be a fire or there was a lightning strike, which is a lot of the problems, or Transformer exploded because PGE is a nightmare. Or is Bertha just constantly hanging out looking for these things? How does the surveillance part work? We kind of envision Bertha as like, what are the driest places by mm -hmm. like satellite imaging that are happening like right now and mm -hmm. then we'll send bertha kind of around that area it's like a lot of combination of data science that we're trying to use to easily facilitate like this technology and we basically sent her into the driest places or like the places that are most likely to catch on fire sure and there's so much more data about that stuff now i mean one exactly. of the groups i worked with uh, in california was sort of the workforce that came together to figure out how the hell they're going to keep insuring homes and businesses and and all these things because the reinsurance market got involved and was like this is not great it's not going well and it's something they have to figure out or else people can't live there right they can't own homes they can't own businesses wineries all this different stuff because like you said now we have all this satellite data that can tell us very accurately and with with heavy recency, basically, like this is what's driest today. This is, like you said, what's most likely to burn. So when there are potential lightning strikes or an explosion or whatever it might be, we can tell where that might happen, basically. So so what you're saying is there's not like 40 Berthas just hanging out around California at all times. You're kind of day-to-day, -day, theoretically, there's a few of them looking for these things. And then how far away might Bertha's children be? I don't know how we're describing these other ones. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, like, we honestly don't really know what we call them. They're just, like, the other drones. Great. Okay. We're, we envision that as they're located just at a local fire station or, like, a fire department. And okay. then they go to wherever Bertha needs them to go. We're testing, like, a hydrogen fuel cell kind of, like, battery power kind of system. Because mm -hmm. the only way for them to really be sustainably like up there and fighting is right now with like gas so like they're gas powered drones just because they are so big sure. um so that's why we're testing a new like power source to make it like completely green and that's essentially like 
like they can run on like six hours with the actual gas in them. Mm-hmm. But hydrogen fuel cell, we're predicting it'll be around eight. Oh, great. I mean, often with battery density where it is, you're seeing shorter shelf life. So that's actually great. I was going to say this might be one of those places where it just makes sense to use gas if they can be up there longer. Because I can imagine yeah. the goal is to be effective. It's not, exactly. we're not trying to, not trying to, like, not trying to save the environment with the drone. We're trying to literally save the environment with yeah. the drone. Um, do this direct thing. Yeah. So, so let's talk about this cannon. Vortex cannon, which if you said those words to my children, they would imagine something completely different. You already kind of described it. Tell me what it looks like in sort of front to back. I was looking at one of the blueprints online and very confusing. So subwoofer in the back, what, what, what's happening? There's three different parts to a Vortex cannon. There's the subwoofer, which is basically like on the end. And first off, I should say like the the cannon itself is like maybe like five or six feet or actually it's been like six to eight feet recently because we, okay. we were testing that and it essentially goes from like a wide neck to a slightly smaller neck and on the back of it there's the subwoofer which is essentially like a low frequency speaker that oscillates back and forth that can take in outside air and shove it through this cannon at high enough speeds and so that's basically just like moving back and forth very rapidly so that the air can like be taken into the cannon and you can imagine it kind of like a speaker from i mentioned like those two graduate students that were fighting wildfires with sound we pivoted from that just because they were using actual like decibel values so where like you Mm. could hear it and it just turns out that you can get the same kind of effect with just like air so there's no decibel value involved there Mm -hmm. really or if it is it's very very small this speaker oscillates back and forth and takes in air along that side. So you can basically act like it's opening, air goes in, it closes, air goes through the cannon. So it just like goes very fast that way. Does that make sense? I mean, I'm sure to a lot of people it does, but I'm a moron. So, and then it takes the air and it shoots it out the front in one of these rings. Yes. Essentially, like when this air is going really fast through this cannon, the cannon itself is getting smaller and smaller and smaller to the point where this air gets concentrated into a fast-moving ball. And when that ball enter, like ex- exits the cannon, hits a lip, uh, which is called like the baffle, mm-hmm. on the end of the cannon that curls the ball in on itself to form a ring. So essentially what's happening is we're taking in all this air very fast through this cannon, and the cannon is getting smaller and smaller and smaller and concentrating all this air into one ball. And then... When it exits, hits this like little lip, and it curls. So it's basically like you're like if if you had like a scrunchie or something, mm-hmm. sure. like like it's basically like you're rolling that scrunchie. If you had it in a ball, you're rolling it out to be a scrunchie. If that makes sense. Sure. Now you're talking my language. I got an eight year old girl. I know about scrunchies. Any woman or man that's ever played with a scrunchie, you roll it. You know, you crunch mm-hmm. it up. You know, oh, yeah. like, it's just easy to kind of visualize, I guess. And so what that scrunchie does is when it exits the cannon, it goes in whatever direction that you kind of like angle it at. Mm -hmm. And when that comes in contact with the fuel base of a fire, because it's constantly moving in the same way that the air is being taken in. So the fire, you mean? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Okay. So because that ring of air is moving like very fast, rapidly, and it's kind of oscillating back and forth like we took the air in, that will push and pull on the fire's fuel base and basically disrupt a bunch of different legs of this fire triangle to extinguish that fire. The ring itself is just constantly moving. Like if this is the ring, it's like constantly moving like within it. So it's like a 3D kind of kind of model. The ring that we've just shot out of our cannon is constantly moving? Yes. Yes. How is it still moving once we've shot it out? It's basically like the laminar flow of the air, which is just like, it's just another way of saying the air moves in one direction. (laughs) So like uh, the air, when it shoots out of this cannon, it's not like getting shot out of the cannon, like stops it from moving. Mm -hmm. It just concentrates it in a smaller radius and then it's able to continue to move. So we're basically just like powering up this ring to be able to shoot out of this at high enough speeds to where it disrupts a fire. How big is our scrunchie? When you say it comes to a small neck, is our scrunchie like the size of my microphone? Is it the size of my head? 
Give me some perspective. Well, like the actual ring itself will be larger than the smaller end of the cannon just mm-hmm. because of the force that it takes to mm-hmm. actually like rip it apart Flip essentially right. yeah right. the ring itself is probably like like two of your heads put together interesting that's so, helpful. So, so like maybe maybe like like four to six feet i would say my head is large i don't know if it's four to six feet doubled but we'll take it two questions is our vortex cannon air coming in from the subwoofer flap 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 going in shorter neck coming out scrunchy flipped over towards the fire is that happening once a minute like a 17th century musket or is this happening a hundred times a second like again little perspective is pew 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 it's happening like essentially like once every second so so like yeah so that air is coming in very fast the speaker is or the subwoofer in this case is oscillating very fast so we're able to concentrate that pretty pretty rapidly and then shoot that through and bertha and her swarm how many are there shooting once per second towards a fire? So that kind of depends on the fire. We kind of envision it to be like closer to like 20 drones that mm-hmm. can handle like a big fire. But again, it's like we're we're trying to make it so that frontline workers don't have to be right up against the fire and we want mm-hmm. to be able to push it back. So each drone basically covers like 25 feet linearly mm-hmm. and 100 feet in front of it. So. We're trying to push back a fire, essentially, if we have 20 drones and we have a a giant firewall that we're trying to create, we'd line them up uh, about like 25 feet apart and we'd be able to contain that much of that fire. And and like that's essentially like, again, like that's what we're trying to do. And like frontline workers right now are on the fire with like hacksaws and bulldozers and it's just so unsustainable and so dangerous. Right, and it's mostly prisoners being paid a dollar an hour. We've been doing that for 40 years. Like, I don't know how no one has oh, sure. done it's anything like, about that. You know, chemotherapy or how we used to cut people's legs off to stop an infection. You're like, it worked. However, fairly barbaric, and we've got to be able to do better. Last perspective contextual question here. Are our 20 Bertha and her 19 teammates shooting once a second each? Are we shooting it the flames or are we shooting down at sort of the root of this thing where the uh, fuel is or is it both or somewhere else it'll kind of come in contact with both but a lot of it is aimed directly at the fuel base so like the base of the fire and the reason for that is essentially like we're trying to knock out two legs of the fire triangle here so like fire triangle is heat oxygen fuel and when we shoot this ring at at this fire when it comes in contact with the fuel base it can strip a lot of that fuel off of it because it is just like a really forceful blow to the actual like base of the fire. So that right there is knocking out a leg with fuel so that the fire has nothing to come back to. But then also like because it is like a forceful blow of air, it's disrupting the actual oxygen molecules that are continuing to fuel that fire. So the fire actually, if it does make its way down to the fuel base, it has nothing to grow from. So like a lot of it is just like when we take in outside gaseous material, that could be also like smoke, that could be soot, that could be a little bit of ash, you know, like all of that stuff that isn't necessarily like that's all dead material that's not going to help a fire grow. So all of it kind of compounded makes it a lot more sustainable for us to use technology within wildfire fighting than than just like people on the front lines. Valkyrie, you realize this is really fucking cool, right? I am so excited. <laughs> Lord, I am so excited. This It's like my favorite thing I've ever worked on. So many incredible people out there doing so many things. We always say it's on the front lines of the future, but what they're really trying to do is help people or help nature, which we just need a drastically better relationship with, right? We are, we are of it. We're not, we don't get to just use it. But at the same time, this all plays into our our culture and our economies, right? It's it's you were just in Los Angeles. I could barely afford to live there anymore. So much less so many people there do service work that are profoundly less privileged and, and well off than we are. So they're moving out of the cities, but they still have to work in them. So they live in these what they call urban wildlife landscapes, the interface, right? Because it's the only place they can live. But of course those are drier and they're hotter and So we're having more fires and deadlier fires. Again, as usual, the caveat, like 
Fires are good. Fire is important. They've been happening for a very long time. There were thousands of years of indigenous people that man started them and managed them in a very effective, important way that preserved and enhanced and helped the forests to flourish for everyone, for the forest for themselves. That's not what we're talking about now, obviously. And more and more people and structures and things like that are under threat. And because it's burning people and structures and cars and things like that and roads, as I talked about with Mary Pernicki, there's things that are burning that are even more toxic than we could imagine. When asphalt burns, we don't really know what that does to our lungs, you know, or some of the materials we're using in these buildings, much less the old buildings that have asbestos in them and things like that. The point is what you're doing here is very important and could be very impactful. That's why I think it's very fucking cool. What does success look like for you? Is this your company that provides these things? Do you just sell them or do you operate them? Do you sell them to fire departments? Do you sell them to Cal? or the state of Nevada? Do you operate as a third party, as a private that comes in to support all of these firefighters? How does this work for you? So right now we're still testing, so we haven't entered like the... Of course. I'm just saying, let's dream for a minute. Yeah. <laughs> that's that's my specialty, Quinn. You know me. Yeah, I do. <laughs> let's do this. So success, basically, we want to roll this out in the next two or three years. We have testing that we're doing right now that will essentially give us the guidelines to be able to teach other people how to use this technology. So mm -hmm. a lot of it has to do with like, if we envision it kind of like we are giving these people this technology and we're selling this technology to them with a guide that says, this is how you operate these drones. This is how you operate the cannons themselves. These are the best angles. And like a lot of that will be autonomous, but this is essentially how you do this. And we want to see it work. And we will eventually put together a pilot program, most likely for the state of California, and do all of these like tests in real in real time. And that's kind of how we envision it, like kind of moving forward. Like we want everyone to have access to this technology. And that way, if we just set out like a guidelines kind of thing for how you use it and how you monitor it and just how how that would all fit together. I think that broadens the amount of like reach that we have. I would love to be out there doing stuff all the time, but I also know that it's definitely a better situation if we give people the tools and teach them how to use them and then let them spread that around. That's my dream. <laughs> I think it's incredible. What are your biggest obstacles right now? You said testing, you're about to uh, get that going again. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, the we don't really test uh, during wildfire season because it's a lot drier, it's a lot hotter, and because we are essentially setting fires <laughs> to mm -hmm. test on, sure. we don't want excess embers or excess, like, dryness or hotness to be the cause of another wildfire that takes frontline workers off of the real fires that are already happening. Um, so, around, like, beginning of October, we're going to start testing again with our prototype and that'll be all on the east coast that's like not really like an obstacle now but just like during the summer it, it's slower and then now it's just we're planning to raise in the next year so funding is definitely something that we are looking forward to like raising like we've never raised really like we have support from 776 foundation and they've been so good to us and now it's just kind of like preparing to do a lot more testing and get a lot more people on board and that's like the main obstacle i'd say like testing is kind of just challenges will come up as as we go but right now we have like a pretty set set method <laughs> and is it still just you and your co-founder it's us and then um there's this company that we're partnered with called evo ems and mm -hmm. they're essentially like uh the people that provide us with a lot of the hardware. So they're like a drone company first and they've mm -hmm. been working on like fire suppression tech. So they've helped out with a lot of the testing and stuff like that. So, so far it's been them in like New Mexico and Virginia doing a bulk of it. So, so it's like five other engineers along with my co-founder. Valkyrie, when you go back and you read your article that you wrote and you were a little bummed, you are so animated talking about the potential of, of how it works and explaining to idiots like me how it works and the effect it can have and understanding the scope of like anything with climate or COVID or public health, whatever it might be. These huge systemic issues mean there's huge opportunities, right? To do things we could have never imagined, right? To actually build something better for more people. 
Do you feel like you're on the right path now when you think about doing this work? Does this make you feel like you're aiming higher, even though there's a very good chance it fails? Might just not work, right? Might not put out fires, might not extinguish them, might not even contain them. But what if it does? Does that make you feel like that's you? I act like I've lived all this, all these years of experience, like when I say stuff, but, but like a, a lot of just me growing up was me not really thinking that good would come of things that I did and like, mm. you know, being in like competitive piano and like, uh, like being in orchestra and all these things, like growing up in Vegas where a lot of people don't leave Vegas, like yeah. Vegas is kind of just, you grow up here, you get a job here, you build a family here, you know? Mm. Being in these places where I was kind of exposed to this life of, oh, like, whatever you do, like, it's not really gonna make that much of an impact. Like, you should just kind of, like, settle. I, I feel like for a long time, I just, like, thought that I was just very negative and I didn't want to take advantage of the things that I was being given. And it was just not, you know, the best mindset to be in. And now knowing that even if this doesn't succeed, that... I learned so much from it and I like created just this whole, we just like built this from scratch and like with all these people along the way and like I met so many amazing people and knowing that if that doesn't succeed, like I'll just start something else. Sure. I have a lot more hope for the world and for my dreams and for everyone else's dreams. And I think every day I see more and more that people are tired of the way things are being done and they're aiming to do something bigger. And I think that's so cool. And so I'm, I'm definitely very happy now. I'm, I'm probably the happiest I've ever been, which is awesome. That's pretty rad. And I think it's going to be inspirational and instructive to a lot of folks, um, both old and young. So on that note, we like to really hone in on specific ways our listeners can get involved, if that's a possibility, or just support your mission in some way, even if it's just following along. Someday that might include fundraising uh, when you get Bertha under control. But also, you know, again, to inspire and instruct them on their own path of people going, frankly, most of the time, what can I do? So in your case, are there specific ways folks can follow you, support you, get involved, and then any other lessons you might impart to folks out there? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so Project Firefly, like we have probably every social media under the sun. <laughs> you can visit our website, projectfirefly.ca. We have like a lot of cool information there. And like, if you guys have any questions, you can also reach out. I think it's just great that we're trying to put this out into the world and let more people know about it. And if this doesn't succeed, possibly, like maybe someone else listens to this idea and is like, wait, like if they did that, like maybe I could do this other thing that I read exactly. about and this other thing. So like, it, it's really just trying to get this idea out there, just like following us. And if you have any questions, just reach out and we'll be updating everyone through those mediums. I have like a personal podcast that I talk about a lot of these things on, and I'm just starting like a YouTube channel again. So all of that is kind of like a mix of my life and what we're doing and how Project Firefly is going. So if you'd like to check any of those out, that'd be great. I love it. Any specific other tips or lessons that you might want to impart on, you know, Valkyrie from, from two years ago? I think I'll just reiterate, like, you're not special. And the things that you do with your life are going to mean so much more when you let go of those expectations that you are. And I don't think a day goes by where I wish I was special. And I, I think having this idea in my head that that everyone is kind of trying to live life in the same way not just to survive but to live mm. I, I think that's a good thing to kind of keep in mind and the fact that if you want to do something with your life don't expect anyone to hand anything to you you got to go out and make your own future and you know improve your past and keep growing from everything that you want to you know continue to live and be i love it Valkyrie, I have a few last questions I ask everyone, and then we're going to get you out of here because you got fires to put out, quite literally. When was the first time in your life when you realized you had the power of change or the power to do something meaningful? And that could be last week. It could be when you were in fourth grade. It could be winning a student election, anything like that. Or with your crew, stood up to a bully. Honestly, I'd say it was two years ago. When I was 16, like I started on this whole like, 
personal development, self-development, like journey. I just started getting involved in a lot of different things. And like you said, you mentioned in the beginning, like I had always wanted to be a chemist, but I had no idea what being a chemist meant. I was just like, <laughs> oh, like, that sounds cool. <laughs> and so like I started actually looking into it and I was like, oh, like I actually don't like this at all. Who knows to the people that can sit in a lab like that? No, that's great for them. I just cannot. Around that time, I had participated in a few hackathons and like wasn't getting anywhere. And then I had won a hackathon for the first time when I was like 17 with my friends at TKS. And for the first time, like it was something surrounding education. It was like VR embedded education, like this idea that we came up with and pitched. And um, for the first time, I was like, oh, like this is what it feels like to like be a part of something that you really believe in like every other project since then like i think school does a good job of like introducing you to things but not so much reinforcing that love of learning so like just being being a part of something that i really believed in that i wanted to see like make change i think that's probably like one of the first times that i realized that it was even possible i love that thank you for sharing that valkyrie who is someone in your life that has positively impacted your work in the past six months. I'm going to shout out David Goggins for a little bit because David I, Goggins. I love that man. Holy shit. That guy doesn't pull any punches. Oh my gosh. So I ran a marathon in November. Congratulations. Where? I did it in like the back country of like Nevada. It was, it was like this trail organized run. or you just wandered out and ran a marathon. It, it was organized. It was organized. Okay. One of the toughest things I've ever had to do. David Goggins, ever since I, saw him and like listened to him a year and a half ago he's like ingrained in my mind like every time i do something every time i feel like i'm just cruising by on life i'm just like oh sure, well, sure. i have to do a marathon i have to do some random endurance right, thing right. that pushes let's watch me. a video of him video doing 700 pull-ups in a row while he yells at you no exactly i read his book can't mm -hmm. hurt me which if no one has like you should definitely read it it's amazing but he has this kind of thing that he says where he's like you know, there's the man that my dad created, that's David Goggins, and then there's Goggins, who I created. And so, like, when I was running my marathon, I'm like, this is Valkyrie. This is the girl I created. I <laughs> and, love like, it. I use that mantra. I use that, like, throughout my day-to-day -day life. Like, I, I just love that kind of thing. And, like, if I feel like I'm not pushing myself harder, like, there's 50% that I'm not even using, you know, like... That whole, like, he is just such an inspiration to me, and I just, I love that man. He is something else. I once ran by him in Central Park inadvertently and was just like, I mean, he's exactly what he looks like. I mean, it's incredible. Oh my God. It's incredible. I mean, his story is wild, wild. Valkyrie, it sounds like running might be part of this, but what's your, as we call it, sort of self-care when, you, when you're like, I can't look at drones and fires anymore? <laughs> For me, it's like, right now it's writing. Um, I'm trying mm -hmm. to write a book this year and I'm Exciting. like brainstorming stuff for that. Like I've always nonfiction. Loved... What are we talking? Yeah, it's fiction and it's basically you you can think of it as like the matrix meets black mirror almost. Into it. It's like an intricate kind of like like almost like interdimensional kind of story. Okay. I, I'm like brainstorming it all right now, laying it all out. So that's like really fun for me to do. I love video games. Like my my I have two younger sisters and an older brother. We all have grown up with video games. My dad's a very heavy video game guy. So there's this game called Cuphead, which if okay. anyone knows it, it's the most infuriating game. But somehow I just love it. Okay. It's okay. just so hard to beat. <laughs> but I like playing that. And like, obviously, music is a lot of like what I do. And I love playing piano. And I played cello for a while. My cello is actually just like right over here. And I, I just love listening to music. I made music for a while, like did like electronic beats. Like I did a 30 day sure. challenge on that. And now my 30 day challenge is chess. So that's kind of therapeutic as well. Nice. So it's just a lot of like random things, like kind of whatever I decide. I do a lot of like 30 day challenges that are pretty nice for me to just like open my day with. Like right after this, I'm going to play some chess. So there, there's a lot of cool things that I like, but I think like above all, it's just like hanging out with family and friends and being you know, present in the moment and like exercise definitely is like something that I really value. And I love going to the gym. I love doing all these things. I don't even really like running. It's just when I feel like I'm, 
I'm not doing enough. It's just like, okay, I have to start running again. I get it. A lot of folks have love-hate relationship with running. I get it. It's hard to ignore the benefits once you've done it, but my God, those first steps out the door, I'm like, what if I just exactly. never do this ever again? Yeah. <laughs> um, Valkyrie, last one. What is a book you've read uh, in the past year or so that's either opened your mind to a topic you haven't considered before or it's actually changed your thinking in some way? One of my favorite books of all time is The Song of Achilles. And it's a book by Madeline Miller about this boy Achilles and his friend Patroclus and their whole like love story growing up together and them fighting in this giant war. And it's such a an amazing book. And like uh, I read it last December, like right before the new year. And I finished the book and I had a bunch of books that I wanted to keep reading. And so I finished it, put it to the side, started reading this other book. And I'm like, there's something that just like, I cannot focus on this book right now. So in my classic style, like I talk to myself a lot and like record it. So I like pulled out my phone and I started like talking and I was just like crying. And I just realized that like this book talks a lot about like the themes of love and learning to love every side of someone. And I realized throughout that book that I was like, oh, like this year I've learned to fully love myself. And I think that's such an interesting thing to like stumble upon. It's like, oh yeah, of course, of course you like yourself, but it's like, Am I doing everything be purely because like I want to do these things or because I'm being influenced by other people that might not be in like my best interest? And I realized throughout like the last year, it was like, oh, I like love myself. And that's crazy. That's like a crazy feeling to think after being so negative for so many years. And so that book just like opened my eyes to that possibility or just like made me aware of that possibility that I had like truly open myself up and to anyone that wants to read a an amazing book like anything by madeline miller is amazing but like specifically that book is just awesome i love that thank you for sharing that that was very uh touching and and vulnerable but also inspirational i think there's a lot of folks that have obviously struggle with loving themselves and believing in themselves and having that confidence i've certainly been there um it's a wonderful book it's truly like you said anything circe is also fantastic and for a different taste, David Goggins, you know, throw them all together. Yeah, definitely. Valkyrie Holmes, this has been fantastic. I really appreciate it. You were so patient trying to explain to me how air works, uh, which is something you think I'd understand by this point. So thank you. Couldn't be cheering more for you. This is a delight. Can't wait to follow along, see how Project Firefly goes, all your testing. Please don't blow anything up that you're not supposed to blow up. And we'll check in. We'll put everything, all the links in the show notes and all that jazz and that's it. We're going to let you get out of here. Thank you so much for your time and everything you're trying to do. This is a big deal. Thank you so much. I had so much fun and I'm excited to see where everything goes. So thank you. Awesome. Thanks for listening to the show. A reminder, you can send feedback or questions about this episode or some guest recommendations to me at questions at importantnotimportant.com. Links to anything we talked about today are in your show notes, in your podcast player. If you want to rep any or your shit giver status, you can find sustainable t-shirts, hoodies, and a variety of coffee delivery vessels in our store at importantnotimportant.com slash store. You can subscribe to our critically acclaimed weekly newsletter for free at newsletter.importantnotimportant.com. Our theme music was composed by Tim Blaine, the show was edited by Anthony Luciani, and the whole episode was produced by Willow Beck. We'll see you next time. <laughs>